Joshua chapter 22 here. I just heard uh, that apparently there was a Facebook post about Miss Alyssa Farinella that her test came back cancer-free, and so praise the Lord uh, for that. I didn't know about that. I don't get on Facebook enough, and so praise the Lord for that. Uh, And then Marisol's here, and so welcome her again. So she's returned. She ran away from a hurricane, and so a week after the hurricane and ended up out here. So praise the Lord for that. She didn't say hello to me, but that's okay. I forgive her. Joshua chapter 22. Uh, We're uh, really finishing up uh, this uh, particular series here. Uh, Next week will be our last week uh, in this. Uh, And really, next week is where I kind of wanted to almost start. And so I'd kind of been trying to lay foundation for to really start with what we're going to talk about next week. Uh, But I think that's of the Lord. And so, uh, uh, but I'm looking forward to next week. Uh, And so if you came tonight... I don't know what to tell you, but next week, come, really, come next week. No, you can leave now. You might as well, no, I'm just kidding. Joshua uh, chapter 22, uh, let's read starting in verse 1. The Bible said, Then Joshua called the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said unto them, Ye have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you have not left your brethren these many days unto this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God hath given rest unto your brethren, as he promised them. Therefore now return ye, and get you unto your tents, and unto the land of your possession, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side Jordan. But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses the servant of the Lord charged you, and to love the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went unto their tents. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we're thankful again to be able to gather around your word and thankful to be able to uh, fellowship together with your people. Lord, we're thankful to be able to uh, worship you and take our prayers to you this evening. Uh, God, we ask that you bless this time. Uh, Might it not be uh, my words or my wisdom to give, but might it be from your word, uh, from you tonight. Uh, Lord, nobody here uh, needs to hear anything from me, but we all need to hear something from you. And Lord, we ask that you might speak. We love you, we're thankful, and in Christ's name we pray, amen. Here at the end of Joshua, if you've been with us here during this time, you know uh, we've been talking about the the problems and the issues and all of what's taken place uh, as God has not just sought to uh, take Israel into the land that flows with milk and honey, but has sought to raise them and sought to invest in them and sought to uh, teach them how they ought to be so that they can be the nation that he desires them to be. Uh, It wasn't just for the purpose that they would get into the land, the end, but it was the purpose that he would be able to build a nation that would be able to showcase him to the world that he could work through, uh, that the world might be able to see who he was through the nation, ultimately bringing the Savior Uh, uh, through the nation in that way. And here in Joshua 22, uh, we see that Israel has taken the land, 
Uh, the major battles are over. Uh, the nations have toppled. God has brought the victory uh, uh, in that land. Uh, there's still, of course, remnants of idolatrous nations to drive out. Uh, but Israel's been established in the land of Canaan. Uh, we didn't comment too much on this uh, way back when this happened, but after uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh actually decided to settle east of the Jordan. They didn't want to come over the Jordan River. They liked that land over there. And so the deal was if they settled that land, that was fine, but they would actually come with the rest of Israel to conquer the entire nation. And they had done this and probably had spent somewhere between the last seven to ten years fighting with Israel uh, uh, there in the land to take it, uh, uh, that they might be able to establish the territories of all of the tribes. And here at this point in Joshua, they're celebrating the amazing victory where they're able to actually say, okay, Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, you're done. We did it. Take your treasures and go home. Live in peace. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting time. It's a time of, of victory. It's a time to uh, praise the Lord. It's a time where they can say, yeah, there's still battles to fight, uh, but they've won. They've got the home. They've, they've got what they've sought after this entire time. And it ought to be a time now where they can uh, give God the glory, take a breath. Uh, but we're going to read the rest of the chapter. Take a look at what happens if you skip down to verse 10. This is as Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are headed home. In verse 10 it says, And when they came into the borders of Jordan, that are in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by Jordan, a great altar to see to. And the children of Israel heard say, Behold, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar over against the land of Canaan. In the borders of Jordan, at the passage of the children of Israel. And then it says, look at this. And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered themselves together at Shiloh to go up to war against them. And so here, amidst the time that it's supposed to be victory and peace and, and excitement over what God has done over what God's allowed them to do, over finally being able to not just be in the land that flows with milk and honey, but establish themselves as a nation there. As they're supposed to be celebrating that, they have this situation where Reuben, Gad, uh, and the half of Manasseh, when they go home, they prepare uh, and build this great altar right there near the Jordan River. And Israel had heard of it. They wouldn't probably have seen it from all that they were, but they, they told each other, they heard this, uh, and their assumption, they can only stand to assume that this altar that was built uh, was either to replace the legitimate altar of God or as a form of idolatry. You see what's taking place? And so their, their assumption is that they went home and immediately, even though Joshua just charged them that they should keep the commandments of the Lord, that they should be faithful to God, that they should do right, Israel hears and sees that as soon as they get back over there, they build this great altar. And so immediately, instead of dismissing all their armies, instead of finding peace, instead of relaxing, they gather all their armies back up and start charging over there, ready to do war with them. 
for either trying to build a false altar to the Lord or uh, 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 practicing idolatry. If you look at what happens down in verse 16, it says, Thus saith the whole congregation of the Lord. This is what they say to uh, um, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh when they get there. They say, What trespass is this? that ye have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord, in that ye have builded you an altar that ye might rebel this day against the Lord. In verse 20, they give even a little bit more context to that. They said, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing? And wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel. And that man perished not alone in his iniquity. They're saying... Listen, we're all in trouble if you're practicing idolatry, if this is a problem. And so they come, and they come with their armies, and they send out their princes, and they send out the priests, and, and they come and, and basically knock on the door of Reuben, Gad, and the half of Manasseh, and say, hey, listen, we're not going to allow your iniquity to take place on our watch, is what they come to do. They cite Achan and they say that his sin caused many deaths. And they said, uh, we're highly motivated to make sure that doesn't happen again. And so they come and they come in battle. They say, hey, we're, we're standing up for righteousness. Not only that, we're going to protect the innocent that might die if you are committing sin. Maybe at this point they're saying, man, we're, we're like heroes of the faith here. We're coming against you idolatrous people that would set up your false altar. Hey, we're, uh, we're the ones now that are going to establish righteousness and we're not going to tolerate anything less as they come. Do you see that? Okay, you don't. That's fine. <laughs> and it turns out, if you read farther, that while they came in their, their mindset of superheroes to establish and stand on the faith and, and protect righteousness and come against those that, that might sin, it turns out they were a little preemptive. And actually, this was a complete misunderstanding. Reuben, Gad, and the half of Manasseh hadn't really actually been setting up an altar as much as they had been setting up a memorial so that the generations to come would know that they're all united as Israel, that they're all God's people, uh, basically, uh, uh, Reuben and company didn't want to be forgotten in time to come and be cut off from God's people. And so it really had nothing to do with idolatry or a false altar at all. But Israel comes and they're, they're righteous. They're standing on truth. Man, they're, they're the people that are defending what God has to say. Even if they're totally mistaken, that's not really what's important. What's important is that they're standing on righteousness. So Israel's satisfied uh, uh, and takes their righteous indignation home. <laughs> and you can, almost, you can almost feel, if you read through the whole story, you can almost feel them leaving with the statement of almost, you guys are lucky, we're watching, we got you. You're lucky this time it wasn't an altar, you better not be in the future. Because we're righteous, we're on top of it. We're, the, we're Israel, the defender of all that is righteous. And now, if you've been with us, if you've read the history of Israel, if you've followed along as we've preached through what's been taking place, this seems a little out of character. Is that extreme to say here tonight? This is a little odd here at this point. 
You may remember them not very long ago continuing to be a complaining and unfaithful and untrusting and ungodly people uh, not very long before this. And somehow, uh, in the turn of a page, they, be, they turn from a wicked, rebellious people into perfect, righteous judges. It, it seems like all of a sudden you turn the page and these people that were uh, wicked and deceitful and uh, rebellious and unfaithful and, and couldn't trust God and, and murmured against uh, Joshua. And then all of a sudden, the next page, they're the bulwarks of righteousness standing on truth ready to go into war and die for anything and anybody that might stand against righteousness. That seems a little odd for Israel. Something doesn't quite seem right on here. And maybe if you're one of those strange optimistic people that I hear about, you might think, well, hey, maybe. Maybe Israel's finally reached maturity. Maybe they are the bulwark of righteousness. Maybe they really are standing firmly on on God's commands and they've got it all figured out. Maybe if you've only read up to Joshua chapter 22, you think they got it together now and things are good. And I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but it's not how the rest of the story plays out, unfortunately. And we'll, we'll, if you'll turn over to Joshua 24, just for a peek here, we're actually coming here uh, more next week uh, as we finish up Joshua. But in Joshua 24, uh, not too long after this takes place, um, Joshua is getting ready to die and he's giving his final instructions to the people. And if you'll just look at verse 14 real quick, this is Joshua now saying, he's saying, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And look what he says. And he says, Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Wait a second. I don't know if you... I don't know if this is making sense to you. They just came and gathered armies together, all of Israel, to come and charge over to the Jordan River where where Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh might have had an altar that might have been idolatrous. And they go over there with the mindset of, we're going to come and we'll kill every single one of you if you're not doing right if you're dare possibly might be practicing idolatry. They say, we're going to war over the rumor of idolatry. And it turns out that actually, the whole time, they still had idols in their own homes. Is that not crazy? The same people who were ready to obliterate three of their own tribes for suspected idolatry, were actually harboring idols themselves. These people who had yet to cease from their own idolatry in their own lives picked up torches and pitchforks at the mere Reuben, uh, the, the mere rumor that Reuben and the company might have had a false altar. And I think that might be a little bit why you don't hear Joshua's input on that whole situation. Because he might have been sitting back a little confused as to what's going on here. 
as to why Israel, who still had idols themselves, are feigning righteous indignation at their brethren. Very interesting situation where in Joshua 22, you don't hear after Joshua dismisses them to go home, he has no part in this whole situation over the altar. And I think it's because he's saying, Wait, what? Have you ever been in that situation? Come on. Where all of a sudden, somebody comes over and they go, um, I saw your Facebook post and uh, it kind of sort of looked like, and I just want to make sure that, are you saying, what are you getting at here? And you're going, are you kidding? <laughs> what? <laughs> Aren't you? Wait, are, were you perfect that I missed that? I don't. It's a very strange situation. And what I want to look at tonight, very simple message as we, as we get into this, uh, I want to ask the question here, and I want us to think about this. How did Israel, who went from a place where they just totally were not sure they were even going to follow the Lord not too long ago, become some nation and some people group that thought themselves so righteous that they were ready to kill in the name of righteousness when they had iniquity in their own lives? How'd that take place? And what I want you to see here, uh, very simple, is that success can be deceiving. Israel, of course, not long ago was homeless, weak, was suffering judgment and rebuke for their own sin. Before they could come into the promised land, they were literally just waiting out 40 years uh, uh, in the wilderness so that they could come in. And as soon as they get a little success, as soon as things start to swing around to go their way, they're immediately filled with some kind of proud arrogance. And it's, and it's like as soon as Israel takes the land and as soon as the bulk of the battles are over, we get the first signs of Pharisaism in Israel. The first signs where they're blind to their own sin and judgmental over the top towards anyone else's. And from the outside perspective, it's almost unbelievable that they would pull this stunt while they had their own idols among them. But that's often what success does. That's often what blessings do. When, when weakness and destruction and problems abound, people are usually pretty humble. <laughs> when life's falling apart... You know what? Oftentimes, it's pretty good for us spiritually. <laughs> Christians, I mean, if we're honest, we've got nothing to boast about. We have no pride to stand behind. I mean, in fact, the Bible, if it wasn't clear enough, it makes a point in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 to say as clearly as can be, you're saved by grace, and it's not of works lest any man should boast. Like, it's, it's totally not of works on purpose. He, in, on purpose, said, you know what? Let's not even ask anything associated with this so that you absolutely know, without a doubt, that you didn't do any of this. We have nothing to boast about. It's, a, it's, it's almost unbelievable that Israel, at this point, would come and go, look at how righteous we are, look at what we did. Pretty good, huh? Are you kidding? 
You were just wandering around in circles in the sand for 40 years. And now you're amazing? <laughs> and we, I don't know why, but we have the same tendency. We have the same tendency to uh, wake up one day and feel like life's going well. We're blessed. Things are good. We've got things in order. And all of a sudden, we become arrogant, proud Christians, like we've achieved something. You know, probably one of the things that ought to sadden us uh, uh, most in Christianity is that one of the most prevalent claims against Christians is that we're arrogant and self-righteous. That ought to embarrass us a little bit. Because it really ought to be the complete opposite. Our testimony ought to be that we're the most humble people, not the most arrogant And it's amazing that when our lives are tossed upside down and uh, we're ravaged by sin in the world and our families are a mess and nothing is right, uh, that we're humble. But then God saves us, everything starts to change, a few years pass and all of a sudden we're stable, our families are okay, we live a moral life, things are going well, and we so easily get the mindset of, see, you just order your life according to the precepts of the Bible and everything works out. You see what I did? Come on, have we not seen the Christian? Have we not been the Christian? That we say, yeah, I mean, it's just very simple. I just, I just decided to do what the Bible said, and man, look, my life's good now. Like we did anything. Like we're amazing. Like we did any of this. No. Unfortunately, us, much like Israel, we're easily deceived by success. And over time, we begin to think highly of ourselves because God's blessed us. God blesses us, and we think we're good. Man, that's, it's, it's a horrible thing, and it's really where they were immediately. And real maturity. If you remember what we're talking about, we're talking about how God is at work in the nation of Israel to mature them and grow them and teach them to be the nation that he can use in a mighty way. And we're, that's the idea here. That's the lesson for us as this is an example to us that God would teach us and grow us and mature us so that we could be people not just that receive the blessings of life abundant and peace and joy and all of what he has to offer us in a promised land living, but so that he can use us. And as he does that, we are often confused about what real maturity looks like. But if we can take a lesson here, before we end up in the, in the book of Joshua finishing, real maturity is never arrogant. Israel gets a few years into the promised land. They see success in battle. And they come to the conclusion that they must be righteous people to have God bless them so mightily. Because God would never bless anybody that wasn't righteous. So if I have the blessings of God, it must mean I am righteous. That's how it works, right? So they arrogantly come to do war with their brothers over the rumor of supposed sin. And a place of false maturity is arrogance. You ever try to tell a teenager almost anything? Almost anything. They already know. They already know. There's no point. How many times have you said, I, I just need to tell you? No, I know. I know. Okay, all right. You're right. You know. You're right. Sorry. You know. Yeah. Right? 
That's, that's, a, that's a little peek into the fact that there's a little growing to do there. That's okay. You know, we all got to do that. We all got to go through that stage. I think every one of us was there as a young person at one point where we said, I think I totally got this life thing figured out. This looks pretty, how hard can it be? I don't know, how dumb must mom and dad must be that they're always stressed out? I mean, <laughs> you ever hear a young person talk? It's like, well, you just, go, come on, you just get a job, right? Like one that pays a lot of money, and then you get a nice house and a nice car. It's very simple. Come on. You ever hear them talk? You ever ask what they're going to do? I'm going to, like, get a good job. Okay. Yeah, you just do it, yeah. I don't know why everybody else didn't think of that. You're right. It's easy. (laughs) It's a, it's a, a, a marker of a false maturity, a belief of maturity, but it's not maturity. If you unfortunately had to see this maybe as a Bible college student came home and they've got their little Bible certificate and they say, man, I got all the doctrine. Let's argue. Let's go. I got it. Got that Bible certificate. A what? You know? Probably you have had to deal with the guy on the job three weeks who's now going to tell you how to do your job and how you've been doing it wrong for the last five years, right? And the same is true in the Christian life. The same is true for the believer who sees some level of success in their Christian life, and all of a sudden, man, they got the whole thing figured out, they're the almighty judge of everybody else, and they're in church telling you, well, yeah, they're doing this wrong, and man, they ought to serve God like this, and man, I don't know why the pastor does it like that, I'll just tell you what. Because I've been successful. Three weeks ago, their family was a wreck, and now they're a family counselor. Right? <laughs> what is that? How do we do that? How do we get there so quickly? Who, I mean, who really do we think we're kidding when we stand up and pretend we're righteous judges of all the earth? And listen, it's not that we ought to never judge. The Bible commands judgment and that it's sometimes necessary. You've got to make judgments in your life but rather that our judgments ought to be out of the humility that we understand, yeah, we're totally right there with you as we judge. It's not that we never judge. It's not that we never declare anything's true or false. But it's that we ought never, if we're actually mature, we ought never think, well, yeah, that was me yesterday, but I'm above that now. I'm good now. Real maturity is never arrogant. And because of where they got to, because they saw some level of success that deceived them and developed this arrogant and self-righteousness, they became the, the utter picture of hypocrisy. They developed the opposite spirit of what God intended them to have. They became, uh, if there was a, a, a dictionary there with the word hypocrite, it would have been them standing there. It was so clear. They came with the attitude of, hey, we're standing on righteousness. We're not tolerating sin in our nation. Uh, We'll go to war if we have to. And that mindset sounds good when you're reading through the story. At first, you're thinking, yeah, this is great. Except it was actually complete and utter hypocrisy. It wasn't real at all. It's pretend. And often, unfortunately, the ones who cry the loudest have the most to hide. It's unfortunately a truth a lot of times. 
And maybe they were compensating to appease their own guilt. We don't know that. We can't look into their minds. But it's absolutely true that as they came and cried at the supposed, perhaps, idolatry of everybody else, they knew they still had... Listen, I don't know if you caught it, but it weren't the idols even of Canaan. It was still the idols of Egypt. They had carried them the whole time. They still weren't gone. And if you know what's coming next, Joshua's finally going to put a a fork in the road for them to make a choice. Because they had carried these Egyptian idols all the way from Egypt. Their parents had them. They they passed them down to, to their children, who now have carried them into Canaan and kept them the whole time. And now they're coming against their brethren for supposed, possible, maybe idolatry. Well, they still carried all those things. Could there be any greater picture of hypocrisy? How could, they, how could they get there? And it's a trap. It's a trap in success. It's a trap in Christianity. It's a trap in enjoying the blessings of God. I know we so often are, are wondering, and I don't know about you, but I've been many times in my Christian life wondering... Man, God, why have you allowed it to be hard during this time? Why have you allowed trial? Why can't it just be blessing? Or I've prayed for this thing that could just... uh, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He could just give it and it could be easy. Why would he not do that? And I've been there many times in in my life, and, and probably you have too. And I think sometimes we miss and forget that there's a large trap in Christianity. That when we're blessed, when things are good we easily begin to think it's because we're good. We miss that. See, in our world, if you get something, it's because you had to earn it, for the most part. If you get a raise at work, it's because you worked hard. God does not work that way. You with me? God does not do that. When God blesses you, it is not because you're awesome. It's because he is. And unfortunately, the trap of self-righteous arrogance regarding God's blessings in our lives, that we think because God's blessed us uh, that we're good, and we get lifted up in righteous indignation at everybody else that we now see as bad. Christian's good. We're good. Man, look at us. We're blessed. My family's good. We're in church. Things are going well. God's blessed me. I must be good. And so now I've got to go and I've got to spend my whole life uh, touting the, the wickedness and the sin of everybody around me. And I can't tell you how many times, I mean, the foolishness of us that just last year, maybe our lives were a mess and now all of a sudden, all we've got to say is about all the sin and the problems in your life and I can't believe this believer over here does this. And did you see so-and-so wasn't in church? And I can't believe they made this comment on Facebook. And did you know that liberals think this? And did you know that the politics of this political party says, and on and on we go about all the things that are wrong with everybody else because we're awesome. Look, we're blessed. Meanwhile, who here would say, I'm without sin? I've got it. Who here would say, man, I came tonight... And I was good. No sin, no problems. Nothing to take to God. I got nothing. Last three days, sinless. (laughs) In other words, 
can we understand that the spirit, that we would come together on a night like tonight and our attitude would be about all that's wrong in people around us, can you realize that there's a bit of hypocrisy in that? Are we blessed because we've been good? Have we been good the last three days since we've met together? Have you been good today where you would say, man, today's a good day, I haven't sinned. You know what, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed every time I preach because every time I preach, every single day, I've got to get right with the Lord before I preach. It's embarrassing almost. I go, I've got to go preach, but first, I've got to go get right with God so I can preach. You almost go, am, am I the biggest hypocrite ever? If my heart and my mindset and my spirit is, I'm good and you need to get right, yeah, I am a hypocrite. God's spirit and the spirit of maturity and what God wants to develop us into is not people who think we're amazing and so we're going to point out the sin of everybody else around us. That was not a marker of maturity in Israel's life. It wasn't a marker of their maturity that they would come against Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh to point out their idolatry. The real marker of maturity would have been if they would have got on their face about their idolatry. That would have been a marker of, uh, of maturity. And every time we get the spirit of self-righteousness, it's hypocrisy. Just because God's been merciful to us, just because God has blessed our life, does not mean that God has declared us to be without error. Sometimes we miss that. God's blessing on us is not God's uh, authentication that we're good. Godliness, in other words, real maturity, where God really wants to take us, never leads us to pride. It never leads us to arrogance. It never leads us into a place where our goal and our life and what we're doing is to judge and to figure out and to tear down and to point out sin of everybody else around us. No, what it actually leads us to is a brokenness, a humility, and a contrition over our own state. David, when he finally figured it out, you, you remember David? He sins. He's got this deep, dark sin, and he thinks he's covered it all up. He goes and he, he takes his own soldier's wife while his soldier is at war, fighting his own cause, and he steals his wife and impregnates her. And then to try to cover it up, he calls him home, and when he can't figure it out, he murders him. Has him murdered, actually. A man who is touted as one that's killed ten thousands, now too afraid to do his own dirty work. And a year passes, and he thinks, man, all is well. Nobody knows. And Nathan the prophet comes and is going to tell something to David. And he says, listen, there's a guy. We need a matter from the king to be judged. We need some righteousness here in the kingdom. And let me tell you what happened. There was a guy who had one lamb, and it was like his, his pet. It was like his family. He loved that lamb. He would pet it. He would take the grease and rub it. And he just loved it. Loved that. I don't know. If, what would you do with a lamb as a pet? I don't know. He carried it. He hugged it. I, what would you do with a lamb? I don't know. Are they good pets? doesn't matter. He loved this lamb. I don't think Nathan got caught up on that fact. But because <laughs> this guy loved the lamb. And his neighbor had great flocks and, and was prosperous and he had some visitors in 
And he was going to make him a meal, but he didn't want to cook one of his own lambs. So he went and stole his neighbor's lamb, the pet, the beloved pet, and made that one to cook for him. And David, if you remember the story, he's enraged. He's furious. And he doesn't go to what the law says to do. He doesn't go to what's righteous even. He says, you know what? Murder him. Kill him. Get rid of him. Put him to death. That's what we're going to do. He's filled with indignation. In fact, and doesn't even realize the story is about him. He doesn't even get it. But he's furious at somebody that would do exactly what he's guilty of. And then the comments that are infamous from Nathan, you know, David, thou art the man. You know what we need to realize? Is when we gather together, when we're going through our lives, and we, we start to maybe type on social media about our righteous indignation... At somebody else's sin, you know what we need to realize? Thou art the man. That's you and me. We're not, things are not good because we're good. If you've enjoyed the blessings of God, it's because God is good. And the reality is, is that we're just as guilty as anybody we would ever point the finger to. Listen, that should not force us not to make judgments or not to call sin, sin. But it should point us into a humility and a contrition to where, we, where, our, where our judgments are coming from a place that we understand, no, that's me. <laughs> yeah, it's you too, but it's also me. <laughs> Isaiah 66, 2, he says, For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Israel was in a place where they held up the word and the judgment and the commands of God as a weapon against those that they might think might be ungodly. When really God says, listen, no, 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 that's not the point. That's not what the word's for. The word has not been given to you so you can bring it as a weapon to accuse others. He says the word is so that you might hold it and tremble at it in contrition and brokenness and humility over our own sin over our own state. Isaiah says what? I am, I am a man of unclean lips and dwell amidst of a people of unclean lips. It wasn't that he said, no, they're good. I don't want to say anything bad about them. But it was that, yeah, their lips are unclean, but let me tell you what, so are mine. Lord, they don't need mercy. I need mercy so that I can tell them how they might find mercy with you. We're almost done. Look at, look at chapter 24. God wants to declare something to the people of Israel here. And as Joshua would gather the people, God would have something uh, to them there in verse 2. It says, Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor, And they served other gods. And look at what he says. Pay attention to some key words. He says, And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau. And I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. And Jacob and his children went down in Egypt. I sent Moses also and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them. 
and afterward I brought you out. Is that not enough? He continues, and I brought your fathers out of Egypt and ye came unto the sea and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen under the Red Sea. And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt. And ye dwelt in the wilderness a long time. Do you get it yet, Israel? doesn't matter. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side, Jordan, and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand that she might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over Jordan, came into Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I delivered them into your hand. He says, but yeah, but but the bugs were just chance, right? He says, no. I sent the hornet before you. Those hornets, still me which drave them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword, nor with thy bow. And I have given you a land which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them, of the vineyards and the oliveyards which ye planted not do ye eat. He says, do you you get what's happened here? (laughs) None of this, from the time that you were slaves in Israel, to the time that you have come into this land, none of it has been by you. You haven't done any of it. You've been along for the ride. All you've been here is a spectator. It's been me. All of your blessings, all of your success, all of what you can look at and and praise God for now is because of me. And we need to understand as believers, we need to grasp it on a daily basis. Is that every success we've seen, every blessing that we possess today, everything that we have is because of Him. Every piece of it. And what arrogance when we pride ourselves in our own spiritual walk. What hypocrisy it is when we are enraged over the sin of others but have no contrition for our own. What utter and complete hypocrisy it would be for us to gather tonight and talk about and complain about and get all riled up in indignation over the sin of everybody else when we have our own to deal with. Why? Because we've been blessed? Not because of us. He did it. God's people ought to come, not just to church, but throughout their lives, throughout each morning, or to awake with a spirit of meekness, humility, and contrition. It ought not be said of believers that we're arrogant and self-righteous. It ought to be said of us that we're humble and contrite daily. Each morning when we wake up, we ought to go, I can't believe God let me live again. (laughs) Is that not His grace? That He would give me another day, knowing yesterday I messed up again? If we were to come to church and we would come, it ought to be that we would say, man, I can't believe God would let me walk through the doors again to worship Him 
that God would want a sinner like me still for his worship, that he would give me blessing and joy and all of the things that he's blessed my life with, why would he do that? What a good God. Each time that we wake up, each time that we gather, each day that we go through ought to be a time that we're thankful, that we can worship, that we can praise, that God would give us mercy again and that we would be able to have the opportunity to bring our failures to his altar and find forgiveness again. When God's people, when church services become a sounding board for all the things that we think is wrong with the world, Instead of a place of repentance, giving God glory for his mercy, something's amiss. Israel got to a place where as soon as they saw success, they thought they had earned success. And they came out and became immediately proud, arrogant, self-righteous people. And you know what? They missed it. I don't know if you know the rest of the story but they don't get it later either. They deal with these idols till till the time that they're destroyed in 70 AD. And there's nothing sadder than week after week you would see somebody and you'd see believers and maybe we would be there ourselves often. And I'll I'll tell you, I've been there. Where you hear a message preached or you read in the Bible and you go, yeah, those sinners... I can't believe people would do that. Yeah, I'd, man, people are messed up. Yeah, this world's a crazy place. There's all sorts of wicked people. Good thing I'm not. Praise the Lord. And service after service, week after week, we'd get up and be on our Bible. No contrition, no humility, no, no brokenness over our own state. That a God that would say, I did all of this for you. That we could even be saved. That we could stand before him at all. That each one of us deserves this day to already be in eternal hell. It's where we ought to be. We didn't save ourselves. Listen, even when he already died, when he already paid the price, when he already did that for us, when we were yet sinners, when we knew him not, even after he did all of that rising from the dead, he still said, you know what? That's not enough. You're not going to hear it. And he pursued us. And his spirit was active in our lives. And it says that no man even came to him except he were drawn. Meaning God was involved in your life to get you to the place that you could just simply call out for the free gift. And then all of the blessings, all of the success, if you've seen any joy, if you've seen anything done in your family, if you've seen any peace, if things have turned around for you at all, it's all him. Every step. And that those people would be the people that would turn around and become arrogant, self-righteous hypocrites. Sad. How could I do that? Yet I do. You know what I want to be? You know what my testimony to be? Not just tonight, but every day. I want to be the person that's thankful every day that God would show me mercy. I want to be the person that every time I come into his house, every time I wake up in the morning to praise him, that I first, I first deal with the fact that I'm a sinner. That I get right for me. 
Not that I'm filled with indignation over you, but that I get right with me. The spirit of maturity and the spirit that God's looking for and the spirit that will allow us to become the people that God can use in a mighty way is not one of arrogance. It's not one of self-righteousness. It's not one of pride. It's one of brokenness, humility, contrition, thankfulness for his grace, recognizing it's all been him. Let's stand to our feet.